Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we always like to remind you, if you're here and you do not have a Bible, we've provided one for you right there in the, in the chair in front of you. There's a pocket with a blue Bible, and we want to invite you to make use of that. Uh, if you're using one of those Bibles, uh, we're going to be on page 559. And also want to remind you that if you don't have a Bible, then please, by all means, take that. It's our gift to you. Our, our greatest desire is that you have the Scriptures the Holy Word of God in your home. So feel free to take that and uh, uh, just accept it as our gift to you. If you are if you found 1 Corinthians 15 or if you're looking at, on page 559 in one of the church Bibles, we're going to begin in verse 1, and this is what we read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, before you're seated, we are going to put our statement uh, for Northridge Life Church about the gospel on the screen, and I'd like for you to read this out loud with me, if you don't mind. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement that the eternal purpose of history has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God being brought within reach by the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, that Christ's death is a substitutionary and propitiatory sacrifice to God for our sins that satisfies the demands of God's holy justice and appeases His holy wrath, while also demonstrating His mysterious love and revealing His amazing grace. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, that there is no other name by which men must be saved, that at the heart of all sound doctrine is the cross of Jesus Christ and the infinite privilege that redeemed sinners have of glorifying God because of what he has accomplished. Therefore, we want all that takes place in our hearts, churches, and ministries to proceed from and be related to the gospel. Thus says God's word, you may be seated. Well, it's good to see you here this morning. You look great. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you look great this morning. The pastor said so. We are currently studying the core 
doctrines, the core beliefs of Northridge Life Church. We, we don't want you to be in the dark about the types of things, the doctrines that our church embraces. We've been doing this for several weeks now. If you missed any of these messages, I strongly encourage you to go to our website, Northridge Life Church, or northridgelife.org, and uh, you can listen to any of the, the messages in this series. We, we spent five weeks at the beginning of this series considering the doctrines of the scriptures, God's written word, and, and then the doctrines of the triune God. We studied the Trinity and then God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And last week, we began considering what all of this means to you and I as human beings, as believers in the Lord Jesus. This process, uh, what it means to us, began with us considering what the scriptures say about regeneration. And if you were here last week, I explained that regeneration is the understanding that the Christian life begins not with an action on our part, not with a decision we make or or something we're persuaded to, but it begins by an action on God's part, wherein He makes those who are dead in their trespasses alive in Christ. Those who are dead in their sins, alive in Christ. Has anyone in this room been made alive by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, today we're going to add to that foundation of regeneration, and we're going to consider together the announcement of what God has both eternally planned and historically accomplished. Uh, we're going to study the, the announcement uh, that God has made, the, the truth that God has proclaimed, so that men and women might be saved. The announcement of the message that we and the church for 2,000 years has called the gospel. The Greek word for gospel, it's a, it's a word that we throw around a lot, a lot of people think it just means religious or churchy. You have gospel music and gospel this and gospel that. But the Greek word for gospel in the New Testament is euangelion. And euangelion is defined, the basic definition, most of you would know this, is good tidings. Or as we would say more more prominently in our culture, good news. The gospel is good news. Would you agree with that? But here's what we got to ask. A lot of times we, we, we fail to answer questions that people are asking and we don't ask the right questions, right? And so our, our goal today is to answer the question, what's so good about the good news? Why do we call it good news? A lot of times when you, when you tell people about Jesus, they don't hear it as good news. They say, okay, can't do anything fun anymore. That's the first thing. Um, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. I've got to give all my money to the church, all, this, all these things. And they're missing entirely the point of the gospel. And, and, and if I can tell, talk to you Alone, brothers and sisters in Christ, you who believe in Christ, a lot of that misperception about what the gospel is, is our fault. It's our fault. Because we've taken the Old Testament, the, the law of Moses, and we've translated it into the new, and all we're giving people is a whole bunch of list of brand new rules instead of the message that Jesus, the King, has come and changed everything. He's changed it all. So what is so good about the good news? First of all, the gospel is good news because of what it accomplishes. 
In our text today that we just read, Paul reiterates for this Corinthian church that the gospel as he preached it to them in the first century, he tells them once again what it did for them. And he calls it the gospel in which you stand. And what does that mean, the gospel in which you stand? To stand as opposed to falling. To stand as opposed to stumbling. To stand as, a, as opposed to crumbling. He's teaching them that only the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen carefully, makes them secure. Only the, the gospel makes them secure before the righteous wrath of God, who is enthroned as the holy judge of every person and every deed done in his youth universe. It is only the gospel that can make you stand in the face of righteous wrath like that. Secondly, the Bible says, or the Bible teaches that the gospel makes us fearless in the face of a culture that would persecute us. The gospel makes us stand before a devil that would accuse us and a world that is constantly trying to seduce us and a sinful flesh that wars against us. The gospel is able to make us stand and not fall. But Paul also says that it's a gospel by which, not that you have been saved, but by which you are being saved. He says, it's a gospel by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is saying that the gospel has intrinsic power not only to initially justify people at that moment that they get saved, but it also that the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to continually reshape us into the image of Christ so that we'll begin to reflect Jesus Christ's righteousness. Now, all of us believe who are Christians, all of us believe that we have been made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. But so often we stop at believing that we are positionally righteous, that even though we're really still pretty stinking rotten, that God looks at us as though we're righteous. But let me tell you that the goal of the gospel is that you are continually being saved. That you don't just reflect Jesus' righteousness in your position, but also in your function. That you become more righteous. That you look more and more like Jesus as the gospel works through you. Like Jesus said, it was like yeast that a woman puts in in a a measure of dough and it works all the way through the dough. I ask you this morning, is the gospel working its way through you even today for some of you many years after you initially believed it? Is it working? Therefore, the gospel both initially saves us and progressively, continually saves us. And it does this only as we unrelentingly and increasingly believe it to be the truth. Paul says that we are to hold fast to the gospel as he preached it. I love this Greek word. This Greek word is, and I hope I don't spit all over you when I say it, this Greek word is katecho, like that. Katecho, and it means it's the same word. It means it means from where um, we get the same words for catechize or cate, or catechism. It means this word literally means to hold fast, to keep secure, to keep firm possession of. Paul's point 
is that we are to hold fast, to grip tightly only to the gospel. Listen, if we add to it by insisting on some religious qualification, or if we water it down in order to make it less offensive to our human sensitivities or to cater to our unbelief, if we alter it so its end goal is not God-centered but human-centered, thereby robbing God of His glory, if we do any of those things, we have no gospel at all. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Belief in such a non-biblical monstrosity is empty, it's vain, and it's worthless. Mark chapter 1. Mark is introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ and he he describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Verse 14, he says, Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist is who that's talking about, Jesus came into, into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, now get this, he was saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the wait is over, my friends. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now notice his words there. Repent and believe the gospel. What that's telling us is the Jesus prescribed prerequisite to believing the gospel is repentance. See, some people want to be persuaded to the gospel, have all its benefits laid out to them like it's a sales pitch, and then they say, okay, I believe that. But Jesus says that the first step, before you can believe the gospel, the first step is repentance. Hello? So what is repentance? Well, the dictionary definition is to change one's mind for better, to heartily amend with abhorrence for one's sins, one's past sins. All of us, let me kind of break that down for you. All of us, when we are confronted with the gospel... All of us come to the gospel with a worldview already firmly in place. Amen? All of us do. This worldview that every single one of us has, that every single one of us brings like baggage with us into our confrontation with the gospel. Every one of us has this worldview that has you and I, that has us at the center of all worth, of all righteousness, of all truth, of all priority. We justify ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves. We judge other people's sins. So everything else is centered on us. But to repent, to truly repent biblically, means to actively and aggressively change our minds. To change your worldview. To trade up your worldview. And and, and in doing that, we have to acknowledge that God alone, everybody say alone. God alone is worthy. God alone is righteous. God alone is true. God alone is glorious far above anything else. We have to acknowledge, listen, this is not popular. Diet Coke commercials tell you, you do you. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible calls us to acknowledge that our self-centeredness is actually the highest order of crime in the entire universe. 
The highest order. Well, what about rape and murder and, and all the other terrible things? No, no, no. Let me explain. It's the highest order of crime. So you see, by our crime, by our self-centeredness, we have all sought to dethrone God and deny Him the praise and the glory that He alone is due. Every single one of us. It's actually, and you boil it right down to it, it's actually treason, isn't it? It's treason. And because of this, this is not something, sadly, that is heard in, in enough churches nowadays. But listen to me. Because of your treason, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and believed the gospel, because of your treason, God stands in your unrepentance and unbelief, not as a friend of yours, but as your adversary. That is Scripture. That is Scripture. You may not like it. You may want to get up and march right out of here. But I will stand before God to give account whether I told you the truth or not. God's Word says that God is not your friend. God is not your friend if you deny His Lordship, if you deny His glory, if you fail to repent of your self-centeredness, God is not your friend. To truly repent... I mean the real deal. You have to abandon your self-promotion, your self-righteousness, forsake every attitude, every behavior that vetoes God and seek to bring Him glory. That's what repentance looks like. To be able to repent, however, we talked about this last week, we have to beg for God's mercy and His help to become what we cannot be on our own, which is repentant. I can't do it on my own. I have to have the help of a God who has awakened me to my own sin in order to be able to repent. And we have to ask Him to cause us to hate the sin we treasure so that we can come to our senses and treasure only Him instead. It's only, only with this preparatory effort of repentance that we can ever really believe the gospel. And we must know what it is, if we're going to believe the gospel, uh, I hope this is just common sense to all of us, if we're going to believe the gospel, it makes sense that we know what it is we're being commanded to believe, right? Amen? Charles Spurgeon said that a man cannot believe what he does not know. I hold no man's faith to be sure faith unless he knows what he believes. If he says, I believe and does not know what he believes, how can that be true faith? I think that's a great question. This is really, really important. In fact, Paul said, if you remember what we read earlier, Paul said that what he had preached to the Corinthians at the very beginning was of first importance. Similar, similarly, he rebuked the Galatians. If you'll remember from Galatians chapter 1, he rebuked the Galatians because they'd abandoned what he had taught them at the first and they embraced what he called a different gospel, which was no gospel at all. I'm sad to say, I'm really sad to say, I mean this. We prayed in our, our, our prayer meeting this morning that we have every Sunday. Uh, we prayed for churches all over our city to to be able to preach the gospel and see many people come to know Jesus. But I'm sad to say that churches all over the world, week in and week out, they preach churchy-sounding things and mere religious traditions that are far removed from the gospel as the apostles taught. 
And as they have been preserved in Scripture, they're just so far from that. What did the gospel that Jesus commanded men and women to believe consist of, according to Paul? Well, the the gospel is essentially a story. Did you know that? How many of you love stories? The gospel is a story. It's just a story. But it has several elements. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, the first element is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We learn at least two things from this passage. First, we learn that Jesus died, listen carefully, not because he was guilty. He didn't die even merely because he was framed. But rather, Scripture all through the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, teach us that he died a planned death for a glorious purpose. And that was to redeem fallen humanity from the curse of sin. He died that even the most guilty among our race could be forgiven and be reconciled to the Father. His death was two things. First, these words were in our proclamation earlier. His his death rather was substitutionary in that Jesus, the righteous one, and dare I say the only righteous one, took a beating, suffering mockery and insults. He wore a crown of thorns. He carried a cross. He was stripped absolutely naked, spat upon, and eventually nailed through his hands and feet for people who were ungrateful and unworthy of such a grand display of perfect love. He died horrifically in the place of those proud rebels. And let me just bring you back to this. We are those proud rebels. It wasn't just Jews and Romans in the first century. It's us, folks. It's us. We would have done exactly the same thing given the chance. He died horrifically in the place of those proud rebels so that they, by an incalculable act of divine mercy, could live eternally. He dies, they live. What a deal. What a deal. But his death wasn't just substitutionary, it was also propitiary, which, which means that by his dying, Jesus Christ satisfied all of that wrath I talked about earlier that the elect had stored up against themselves for the day of judgment. That, that there was an accounting that was coming due. There was a, a debt that you could not pay. We sang about it earlier. There was a debt that you could not pay. And Jesus, out of his own mercy, with the cost of his own blood, his own life and breath, paid that debt. Jesus, by his dying, satisfied all of God's wrath. The, the, the boiling cauldron of God's justice, instead of rightly being poured out on you and I, was poured out on him instead, so that you could walk in tender fellowship with the Father who created you. What a deal. What a deal. Next we learn, the other thing we learn from that passage is that all of these events were predicted hundreds of years previous in the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. In Romans 16, Paul says that the gospel is the revelation of a mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. This isn't just a Jewish affair anymore, folks. That means wherever you are from, wherever you were born, that the gospel is what has opened the door to the kingdom of God, to the family of God wide open for you. After his resurrection, Jesus 
stumbles upon, or he comes upon, doesn't stumble upon, but he comes upon two depressed disciples. It's a sad thing to see a depressed disciple, but Jesus found two of them on the road to Emmaus. They're supernaturally kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asks them an obvious question. He says, hey, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so upset? And they tell him that the one that they thought was to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has been killed. And it gets worse. Some, some cruel prankster has stolen his body and they don't know where he is. And they're depressed about it. Now watch what Jesus, who these guys assume that they're strangers, watch what Jesus says and what he does. It's beautiful. Luke twenty four twenty five says, And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying, hey, guys, this shouldn't have taken you by surprise because the prophets of the Old Testament have been talking about it for a long time. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now watch, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. What does that mean? That means all of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul says that his death and resurrection were in accordance with the scripture. It's been planned since the foundations, before the foundations of the earth. Next, Paul tells us that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's point in emphasizing that Christ was buried is to say that Jesus Christ actually, as a matter of historical fact, died. Now, there have been many skeptics to challenge this fact. But none of them, none of them have survived serious scrutiny. One of the most popular theories embraced by some desperate agnostics, some Hindus and Ahmadi Muslims is the swoon hypothesis. Perhaps you've heard of it. It states that Christ didn't in fact die, but depending on which theory that you listen to, he was revived somehow after his crucifixion in the tomb through the use of drugs or special ointments. I'd love to have a bottle of that. Um, through special ointments or the cool, damp air in the tomb. All he needed was to catch his breath. But we know, now to consider the, the, the foolishness of that position, we know that Jesus Christ was beaten, resulting in a severe loss of blood, the exposure of his bones and internal organs. We know that he, after that beating, he was forced to carry the cross beam of a Roman cross weighing upwards of 100 pounds. He was hung on that cross for six full hours, and if that wasn't enough, at the very last, he had a Roman lance thrust into his side, most likely piercing his heart. And my question for you is, who on earth could survive that? Who on earth could survive that? There is... The, the, the truth about this, swoon hypothesis and many others, is that there is no serious archaeologist or ancient Near East scholar, whether they're Christian or otherwise, who doubts that Christ was a historical figure who died by crucifixion in the first century. But Paul makes even a larger point. Brace yourself. Paul makes even a larger, better point. And that is that though Jesus Christ, empirically, clinically dead... 
was raised from dead from death three days later. That is, that is the, the emphasis. That is the point. The thing that everything the, the gospel is points to. Not the fact that he merely died. Because let me tell you something. I don't mean to be sacrilegious or anything. But if Jesus only died, no big deal. Y'all are scared to say amen, but I'm telling you, if he only died, no big deal. Don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ is not raised, we are all still in our sins. It is the resurrection, it is the raising of Christ that makes the gospel have the impact that it has. Jesus has been risen. And Paul also says that this, it was in, in accordance with the scriptures. Like Jesus' death, the apologetic arguments for the historical fact of his resurrection are unassailable to anyone who looks at it with the smallest modicum of logic and reason. I wish, I wish that time allowed me this morning to detail the vast evidence for Christ's actual physical resurrection i've pointed you to the book more than a carpenter there's all kinds of other books out there that that do the same thing but you should just start here consider the testimonies you can buy all of their books they they lived in different time periods consider the testimonies of simon greenleaf of josh mcdowell of lee strobel all three of them were highly educated atheists they were not in any way, none of the three of them were in any way uh, uh, wavering on this point. They were not looking for Jesus. They weren't trying to, to figure this out. All of them were at the top of their field, and at different periods in time, they set out once and for all to disprove the resurrection. Once and for all, figure this out and make a mockery of, of people who believed it. But in all three of their cases, and thousands other like them, when they were... When they saw the vast evidence of the resurrection, all three of them were converted to Jesus Christ. They said, I can't fight this. This is absolutely true. Paul says that, among the, that all of the apostles, along with 500 others at one time, and even he himself had seen the risen King of Kings with their own eyes. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ has been raised. The real thing to consider for us this morning is what his rising means to you and I who have believed. The passage that we read at the beginning was the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and that chapter is devoted entirely to Paul's defense of the historical resurrection and also uh, to point out the theology that is highly relevant to believers because Christ was risen. Here's kind of the, the crux of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. It says, For as by a man, this speaking of Adam in the beginning, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Can anybody guess who that man is? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There is a day coming, like Jason talked about, every tear will be wiped away, all the scars will be gone, all the pain will be gone. Sin will no longer have any hold on us whatsoever as Christ comes and and saves us to the uttermost, even pulling our rotten carcasses out of the grave and making them brand new bodies. Praise the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a guarantee 
to all of us who put our trust in him that death holds absolutely no terror for us whatsoever. As Jesus rose from his grave, so will all who place their trust in his gospel. Everybody take a deep breath. Let me ask you, are you beginning to see why Christians for 2,000 years have chosen this word gospel? Are you, are, are you beginning to see why we call it good news? Are you seeing it? Though Christ's death, or through Christ's death rather, we've been forgiven of even the most heinous crimes. I, I, I have you do this from time to time, but close your eyes for just a second, just a brief second. And think about that one thing or that series of things that if anybody in this room knew you would die of embarrassment. And let me tell you something, every single one of us has them. Every single one of us. If I could pop up on the screen and show everybody in this room the worst of who you have been, how, how quickly you would crawl under the seat or run out the door never to return. And it's not the little white lies. It's not the time you ordered water and filled up with Coke it's not those things that Jesus is after. Jesus looks at the things that would be displayed on that screen and he says, paid in full, forgiven, forgiven. Through Christ's death, we've been forgiven of the most heinous of crimes. And, and, and more than that, like I said a few weeks ago, that was only the beginning. Because of that forgiveness, we've now been brought into unity, into perfect reconciliation, into sweet fellowship and communion with the living God, the one who we sang about, who, who spread the, the, the night canvas with all of those stars, the one who created each and every one of us in his own image. We can have fellowship with that living God. And through his resurrection, we've been granted eternal life. Oh, man, all those good things are never going to end, folks. They're going to get better and better and better, especially when we shed this old body of sin. More than that, we've been promised that we will have a physical resurrection from the dead at the last day. Just hold on. It's coming, folks. And we've been told... As I said at the very beginning, that we stand by this gospel and that we're being progressively saved from the dominion of our old fallen natures by it. I don't know about you, but I don't really see a downside to the gospel. Anybody? I don't see it. So the last thing we have to ask ourselves is, to whom, to whom is this gospel, this good news, available? Look at Paul's description of his own, own encounter with the risen Christ again that we read earlier. 1 Corinthians 15a, last of all, he's just listed all the people that, have seen, that saw the risen Lord. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now watch verse 9 very carefully. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Oh, man, I would hate it, Mark, if you put all that garbage up on the screen that, that would be so embarrassing to me. But let me tell you something. 
that isn't who you are anymore. That is not who you are anymore. By the grace of God, you are what you are. You have been cleansed. You've been sanctified. You've been made acceptable. You've been adopted. You've been brought into fellowship with the living God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, is Paul boasting there? No, 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 not at all. Paul stands with his mouth agape, amazed at the fact that he, of all people, has been chosen and saved by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Why is he so amazed? Because he knows exactly who he was when Jesus found him. He's not fooled at all. He couldn't deny it. Jesus caught him right in the act, if you'll remember. He was on his way. Uh, He was on the road to Damascus, and he was going to arrest and imprison and possibly even execute members of Christ's church, his bride, his body. But instead of, of arresting disciples of Jesus, he got arrested by the grace of Jesus. Instead of imprisoning those who called on the name of the Lord, he became in that moment, as he called himself, the prisoner of the Lord. Instead of going and and executing and killing people who believed in the Lord Jesus, the Lord on that day on the road to Damascus slew his religious pride and his intellectual arrogance. And he became a disciple of the living Christ, just like those that he was persecuting. His words here echo what he told Timothy in another definition of what the gospel is, probably the shortest and most, one of the most beautiful in the scriptures. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Is there anybody in this room besides the pastor who could give Paul a run for his money on the title, the chief of sinners? Anybody? Anybody? One or two of you, three or four? I beg to differ with the sainted apostle. But Paul is recognizing who he was and he says if, if Jesus Christ could save Paul, and this is hopeful for all of you, he could save anyone. Anyone. What do you have to do to believe the gospel? We talked about what you've got to do in repentance. What do you got to do to believe the gospel? Well, I think you just acknowledge like Paul that you too are among the chief of sinners. Well, that doesn't make me feel very good, Mark. I didn't make the rules. (laughs) You have to acknowledge that you're just like Paul. You're right there among the chief of sinners. Acknowledge, like Paul did, that you are utterly unworthy of the grace and the kindness that Christ would pour out on you. See, if you're bringing a list to Jesus to impress him, fold it up. Put it back in your pocket. 
You can't impress God anyway. You might as well just be honest. Because if you come to Jesus' desk and you bring him your resume, he isn't even going to look at it. He's going to shove it right in the shredder. Because that's where your resume belongs. Hello? If you want to get the benefits of the gospel, and I hope you all do, if you want to receive everything that the gospel offers men and women, it's only because you come to him as the old hymn, the, old, the, the rock of ages puts it. You guys remember that song? The rock of ages in, in one of, I think it's the third verse, says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And that's the heart attitude. That is the prerequisite heart attitude to be able to come to Jesus, to repent and believe what he has done for you. You got to start there empty-handed, naked, helpless, vile. And it is only, it's the only way when you come to Christ and only when you come that way may you come to Christ. Listen, get it out of your head for now and forever. Jesus has, or, or, or let me say this differently, you have nothing that Jesus wants. Not a thing. He doesn't need you. I remember when I was, when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up in Odessa, Texas. And those of you who kind of know the story of Odessa, you know, Permian High School and, and the whole Friday Night Lights phenomenon that happened. That was actually the year that I graduated was the year that that, that story, uh, you know, was made. That the, it was the, the class of 1989. And there was a young man who was in that, in that, uh, on that team. His, his picture is actually in the book who became a very good friend of mine. And, and Steve was a, was a friendly guy, but he was just as messed up as anything. Didn't have any time for Jesus. And, and he was, he was uh, uh, you know, had all kinds of issues, chemical addictions and things like that. And I remember thinking as a young Christian, I think, if I could just get Steve to believe in Jesus. Wow. Man, the whole, the whole Permian High School football team would come flooding in after him. You know how stupid that was? Because if Steve was going to come to Jesus, he has to come the same way you and I do. Not as some big football star, local football star. He has to come empty-handed, naked, empty, vain, all of that stuff. He has to just come just like we do. See, Jesus is not looking for anything you have. He does not need anything that you're going to bring. But can I tell you the other side of that coin? He has everything you need and nothing that you don't. Nothing. Everything that you need. To receive the benefits of the gospel, what's required is belief. You must believe. You must believe. Please hear me. Especially the more impressed you are with yourself and your goodness. You must believe that you are more sinful, more broken, more helpless than you ever imagined. But you also got to believe this. This is a good part. 
You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is more loving, more forgiving, more gracious, more powerful than you have ever or could have ever dreamed. Anybody experience that? Do you remember where you were when he found you? Do you? And it's good to remember those days. Sometimes I remember them with horror until I remember that it was in that moment when Jesus found me that he made me brand new. He's more loving, forgiving, gracious, powerful, all of those things than you ever dreamed. He is able to save to the uttermost all that come to God through him. And when you come to him... He makes you, this is the good part, here's the payoff, He makes you into what He wants you to be. It's something that you could never be on your own. All your effort means nothing. The Bible says our righteousness is like dirty, filthy rags before Him. The old persecutor, remember? The old persecutor, Paul, became an apostle and the author of most of the New Testament. But he never set out to do such a thing. On the contrary, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He knew what he was. And he knew that what he was, he only was by the grace of God. May God make us all ever so aware and ever so humble to know that anything we are, we are by the grace of God. Amen. So our constant aim at Northridge Life Church is that everything we preach is always the same gospel. Did you hear what I just said? When I stand here, as long as God gives me the opportunity to stand here, I'm just going to tell you right now, especially if you are kind of kicking the tires on our church and trying to figure out if you want to be a part of this church, I only have one message. That's it. That's all I got. If I have one message. I'm going to preach the same gospel, maybe stated in different different ways. But if you ever think that you need something new, something more novel or something more poetic or amusing or practical, then my friend, you have not the first clue about how desperately badly you need the gospel. And, And... If you are looking for all those things, I don't want to disappoint you, and I want to be as welcoming as I possibly can, but this is probably not the church for you, because I have one message. And if a thousand of you show up, or one of you shows up, or none of you shows up, I'm going to live and die by this message. That's it. When the Holy Spirit reveals the depth of the gospel to you, you will never tire of it. Never. Never. In fact, you won't be able to live without it. The gospel is the spiritual bread Christ spoke of when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Answer this question about yourself. Honestly, are you living today by the gospel? But more than just what we preach, we want everything that takes place in our hearts, our families, and our church to proceed from and be related to the gospel, just as we read in our statement. The gospel, listen, listen, the gospel is everything. It's everything. Without it, we're just a club, just like any other club in town. Without it, you are just a run-of-the-mill religious zealot without the gospel. Without it, we have no answers for this world whatsoever. Without it, We should eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
But with it, with the gospel, we are loved, we are forgiven, and we are accepted. With the gospel, you and I, from all of our diverse backgrounds, are made members, one of another, part of an eternal family. Did you know that? If you're sick of me, I've got problem. I've got a problem for you. We're going to be together forever. Forever. This isn't just where we choose to go to church right now. We're, we're building a family that's going to last forever. A, a trillion times a trillion years will only be the scratching of the surface. I like it because most of you I like. I'll let you guys discuss among yourselves which ones I don't. (laughs) With the gospel, we also have purpose. We have a purpose. My life has meaning because of the gospel. And with the gospel, this is what I love about Northridge Elementary and our partnership there. With the gospel and only with the gospel, there's hope for the very worst corners of this world. Did you know that? And with the gospel, as I said earlier, not even death can terrify us not even death the words of jesus from two thousand years ago still apply the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel amen we're about to gather at the lord's uh, supper and so i'm going to just ask you real quickly if you would um, stand with me and We do this every week, and we do it because of the gospel. This is a a dramatic display of the gospel. It's a dramatic display of a man who was innocent, who was also God, and was broken and battered for our benefit. And his blood was spilled so that we could be clean and we could be healed. And so, as you come today and, and take of the elements that we're going to present to you, then I want to ask you to, if you're a believer here today, I want to ask you to um, consider deeply the cost of your salvation. Jesus, I've said this before, was not heaven's tip. He wasn't he wasn't something that, that God did out of his abundance just to kind of fix our problem. No, no, no. When, when God gave Jesus, he bankrupted heaven. He bankrupted. He laid it all on the line because he loved you so much. And that's the good news of the gospel. So don't come up here and get a piece of bread and dip it in a little juice. Come up here and realize that these are elements that were designed by Jesus to remind us of a man innocent who was completely broken, whose body was drained of its lifeblood so that you could be forgiven. So that what could have gone on that screen is forever forgotten. The Bible says he's taken our sins and he's thrown them as far as the east is to the west, that he has buried them in the sea of forgetfulness. And as many people have said, he's posted a no fishing sign. They are gone forever. Listen, you may be here today under some level of condemnation, even as a believer. I'm telling you, your sins are gone. 
they're gone. They, are, they have no hold on you anymore. You are, you are free from the curse of sin by the, by the work of Jesus Christ. That's for you believers. Well, there's some of you who are here, and you know good and well that you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus. To put it in our common language, you are not a Christian. You may be religious, you may be churchy, you are not a Christian. Because you live by all kinds of other things besides the words of this book, the truth of this gospel that I just presented to you. You're you're all over the map besides that. I want to beg with you. I want to plead with you. Do not come and profane yourself and, and, and the supper of the Lord by taking this. The Bible says that the one who takes it unworthily eats and drinks condemnation over himself. Not popular to say, but that means... Condemnation means damnation. Damnation means hell. Don't do that to yourself. Don't do it. But what you can do is take all of that self-centeredness, all of that self-trust, and throw it on Jesus and become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you don't know what you're doing, if you have questions, there's nothing wrong in the world with questions. We all came to Jesus with questions. But come talk to me. Please let's talk about your questions. Don't put off the, the destiny of your soul to one more day, one more minute, one more hour. Come and be made know, be made whole, be made new in the fountain of grace that's available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Scripture says, Paul is writing to, again to the Corinthian church, and he says, But he says, um, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And it goes on to say that in the same way he also took the cup after supper. And saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you so much for your gospel that makes us new, that makes us whole, that makes us righteous. And God, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would just... Meet us here as we gather around your table. Meet us in remembrance. Meet us in healing. Meet us in power. Meet us in truth and revelation, Lord God. Meet us, Lord God. Let this be a time not of religious ceremony, but of fellowship with Jesus. God, we need you. We love you. We hunger and thirst for you. So we come now to feast upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.